1: Without any further ado, I want to introduce our next guest who is uh, one of my favorite people in this entire field of UFO research, and um, I say this because um, I I know her, and I've listened to her speak so many times, and uh, the the reason I think Kathleen Martin is so important to us is, A, it's not simply that she writes with such logic and precision, and it's not simply that she uh, she speaks. She's one of the best public speakers in this field. Um, if you haven't heard her speak, you're in for a treat. She's one of these people that we really want representing us because, uh, you know, this is a subject that does not even now still get any real mainstream respect or very, not very much anyway. And what we need more than anything else are in people like Kathleen who are dignified and smart and insightful and fearless, which she is all of those things. I'm not reading from a bio of her. I didn't, have to, I didn't pull it out, but it doesn't matter because I think that you're, you're gonna be listening to one of the most important people that we have here and in the field in general. She speaks everywhere. She's uh, coming out with a new book, or it is out or it's about to be out, and uh, you can talk with her after she's done in the back. Uh, one of the best people we have in the field of ufology today. Please let me welcome Kathleen Martin.
2: It's such a pleasure to be here in Exeter today. Uh, I now live in Florida. I've been there for seven years, but I was born in Portsmouth. I grew up in Kingston and uh, just always have a warm place in my heart for Exeter, New Hampshire, where my children went to high school and junior high school. I'm the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. You might know me for that reason. I'm also the Mutual UFO Network's Director of Experiencer Research, uh, nationally and internationally as well. And today, I'm just going to give you a taste of some of the information that is in my new book with Stanton Friedman. It will officially be released on September 19th, but we have some early copies here hot off the press. So uh, about 26 years ago, maybe a little more, I made the decision to leave my profession as an educator. I had been uh, a social worker earlier in my career. I sort of slipped into education because I moved to Cincinnati, where my first husband was studying for his doctorate in the philosophy of psychiatry. I had to take the first job available to support the family. And there happened to be a teaching job in the inner city. And so I switched from being a social worker to being an educator and stayed in that field for a number of years, did graduate work in that field. But I, about 26 years or so ago, decided that I wanted to learn the truth about the Betty and Barney Hill incident. I was, 16, I was 13 years old when the event occurred. Betty called my mother when she arrived home. She, she and Barney had slept, and then she needed to talk to her sister about it. I happened to be home from school when the call came in, overheard uh, the conversation that my mother had with Betty. Now, this lecture is not going to be about Betty and Barney Hill, I've told that story before a couple of times here, I believe. But there has been a lot of misinformation in the media about what happened to Betty and Barney. Uh, Many of you in the audience may be familiar with the story that Betty and Barney were driving through the White Mountains of New Hampshire at night, that a new light in the sky seemed to be following them, and that uh, they then noticed some missing time later on, and that under hypnosis, they had a close encounter and abduction. Today, I want to show you the archival records. And I'm going to read from them so that you will know the truth about what happened to them, because that is misinformation that I just stated. It's not true. So let's take a look at the truth. And what you see my co-author, Stanton Friedman, and myself, here we are at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I've made several trips there over the past uh, few years. Stan joined me for one of those trips. He had been there independently as well. I think that it's very important to go to the archives. If you can't get to the witness, if the witness is deceased, or even if you can interview the witness, go to the archival records so that you can see what was documented back when it occurred. So as I said, the Betty and Barney Hill incident happened on September 19, 1961, in New Hampshire's White Mountains, into the early morning hours of the 20th. And when they arrived home on the, they arrived home on the 20th. On the 21st, they filed a Project Blue Book record report through Pease Air Force Base. And this is going to give you some information, quotes directly from the Air Force's archival record. And this is what they said. They observed a brightly lighted object ahead of their car at a 45 degree angle of elevation when first witnessed. The object was moving north very fast. It changed direction rather abruptly and headed south. they said, when it seemed to be a matter of hundreds of feet above their automobile, it would be about the size of a dinner plate at arm's length. Just imagine that, a dinner plate at arm's length. That was pretty big. It was pretty close. It stopped and hovered in the air, while hovering objects began to appear from the body of the object. The flight was described as jerky and not smooth. Mrs. Hill reported the flight pattern of the object to be erratic. It changed directions rapidly. It ascended and descended numerous times very rapidly. There was no sound evidence. They report that when the object was above them, after it swooped down, they heard a series of short, loud buzzes which they described as sounding like a dropped tuning fork. They report they could feel these buzzing sounds in their auto. So this is all part of the first report that they made to Pease Air Force Base. When they arrived in the vicinity of Ashland, New Hampshire, they again heard the buzzing sound of the object. However, they did not see it at this time. Mr. Hill stated, inasmuch as he and his wife did in fact see this occurrence, he decided to report it. You may have heard that Barney was not interested in this initially, that he really couldn't remember anything. This is the archival document, the Air Force's archival document, proving what the truth is in this case. There's been a tremendous distortion of fact about this case. Then, on September 26, 1961, only five days after they made that report to Pease Air Force Base, they made a report to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. They made the report to Donald Kehoe, you can see him. Uh, His photo right here, he was the director. They knew to do this because Although they had although they'd never read anything about UFOs before, Betty decided to go to the Portsmouth Public Library and find a book so that she could learn more about what they saw. And his address was there. And this is what she wrote to him in part. You can see the entire letter up at the top here. But I'm going to quote to you some very important excerpts about what they had conscious, continuous recall for. She wrote, as it approached the car, we stopped again. As it hovered in the air in front of us, it appeared to be pancake in shape, ringed with windows in the front through which we could see bright blue-white lights. Suddenly, two red lights appeared on each side. By this time, my husband was standing in the road, watching closely. He saw wings protrude from each side, and the red lights were on the wingtips. She continued, as it glided closer, he was able to see inside this object, but not too closely. He did see many figures scurrying about, as though they were making some hurried type of preparation. One figure was observing us from the windows. From the distance this is seen, the figures appeared to be about the size of a pencil and seemed to be dressed in t- shiny, some type of shiny black uniform. And that's probably a pencil at arm's length. The reports, original reports, state that Barney could see them from the top of their heads down to about their knees. She can. Uh, Walter Webb continued. Or um, Walter Webb. Uh, did investigate this report after it went to NICAP. Uh, This is a confidential report that he wrote. He interviewed Betty and Barney for a period of eight hours on September 20th, 1961. And on September 26th, he wrote his confidential report based upon the interviews that he conducted with them separately and together. And this is what he stated. And by the way, he was a scientist. He was an astronomer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston. He had worked with Dr. Alan Hynek on the satellite satellite tracking program. And this is an important excerpt from his report. He stated, the approaching UFO finally filled up the entire field of binoculars. The leader at the window held a special attraction for the witness and frightened him terribly. The witness said he could almost feel this figure's intense concentration to do something, to carry out a plan. Mr. Hill believed that he was going to be captured like a bug in a net. That is when he knew it was no conventional aircraft he was observing, but something alien and unearthly, containing beings of a superior type, beings that were somehow not human. So you can see from the very beginning of his conscious continuous recall, this is what Barney remembered. It was not brought out for the first time under hypnosis, a little more than two years later. And the reason I present this to you, and I'm doing it over and over again, is I have appeared on many, many television programs speaking about this. And each time I present that evidence. Yet, when you see the program on television, they'll say that Betty and Barney saw a light in the sky, and then under hypnosis, all of this came out. No one has had the courage to put that truth on television. Well, I read to you the documented files from the Air Force, but after those were written, there was some additional information that was written that was contradictory. Initially, Project Blue Book wrote, the vehicle ascended and descended rapidly, and it swooped down. In their later reports, they wrote, there was no lateral or vertical movements. They also wrote, no evidence was presented to indicate the object was due to other than natural causes. So you see, there's a UFO as large as a dinner plate hovering overhead. And they think of a prosaic explanation for it. They lie and say there was no vertical or lateral movement. They said it was probably, quote, an advertising searchlight or the planet Jupiter. Imagine that. (laughs) They say that it was the result of a strong temperature inversion. So that craft that was hovering maybe 100 feet overhead looked larger than it was. It was actually a distant star or planet. That's what the Air Force would like to have you believe. Well, I wanted to check out the facts from that night to find out if there actually was a temperature inversion up in Lincoln, New Hampshire. And I went to a senior meteorologist and asked him to uh, look at the archival record from the National Weather Service. He did, and he asked two of his colleagues, who were also senior meteorologists, that whom he respected, to look at them as well and to offer their opinion. And this is what they wrote back to me, quote, the light east airflow that night would cause subsidence warming, just the opposite of an inversion as claimed by the Air Force. I also found another important document and you can find this online. It's at uh, kufan.org. There was a study done in 1974 at Maxwell Air Force Base by two Air Force officers. And the question they asked, the title of their paper is, should the U.S. Air Force reopen Project Blue Book? And one of the cases that they examined was the Hill case. And so here are some quotes based upon their paper. You can... I strongly encourage you to read this very lengthy paper that they have written. But one of their comments was, quote, during the final years of Project Blue Book, it was not unusual to see three or four explanations for the same UFO sighting, with no reason given for determining the final selection They stated, the Air Force's official explanation on the Hill case turned out to be, quote, almost as erratic as the radar and visual sightings themselves. Project Blue Book ended their investigation of the Betty and Barney Hill sighting and the corresponding radar sightings without ever recontacting the Hills. This is a particularly disturbing aspect of this sighting, close quote written by two Air Force officers. They said no attempt was made at, quote, drawing a possible correlation between the visible, visual and radar UFO reports, the ones in North Concord, Vermont, Air Force Station, and Pease Air Force Base Precision <coughs> Approach Radar, even though former Project Blue Book director Captain Edward J. Ruppelt Admitted as early as January 24, 1953, that visual reports that supposedly correlate with erratic radar tracks warrant a detailed investigation. So you can see that a cover up was going on almost immediately. Quote, the official Air Force release concludes by stating that no evidence was presented to indicate that the object was due to other than natural causes, but makes no mention of the radar tracking. Also, on November 9, 1965, 10 days after the last Hill article appeared in the Boston Traveler, Project Blue Book's Deputy Director of Information, mailed copies of the articles to the Pentagon's UFO spokesman. So although they showed no visible apparent interest in the case, when the story broke publicly as the result of a violation of confidentiality, the Pentagon was very interested in this case. I've read that part. (laughs) Okay, and he went on. The radar shimmering originally reported to the press was much more than a shimmer indicating an air mass. It was a bona fide sighting. It is not clear why Project Blue Book withheld information to the press regarding the Pease Air Force Base radar sighting. So even the Air Force here is admitting the cover-up, these two Air Force officers at Maxwell Air Force Base. Another cover-up took place with regard to the Kensington, New Hampshire uh, UFO sighting, close encounter, Uh, you're all aware of that. That is why we're having this conference in 1965 on September 3rd uh, in the lower Right-hand picture, you can see Norman Muscarillo, you can see uh, David Hunt and Eugene Bertrand, who were the two patrolmen who saw the UFO as well, and Scratch Tolan, who was the dispatcher that night. And here are officers Hunt and Bertrand standing in front of their patrol car. And up at the top, you can see a little uh, segment of the articles that appeared in the Exeter newsletter in that time frame. This is one of the original drawings. I added some color to it just to add interest. And very briefly, I'm going to talk about what happened. You can see uh, that Norman Muscarillo, you can see Route 150, Norman Muscarillo uh, was a young man who was going into the military just uh, about two or three weeks later after this occurred. He had been visiting a friend and was trying to hitchhike home uh, that night uh, to his home in Exeter, but the traffic was very light. He didn't get a ride. He walked most of the distance. Uh, When he was in front of the Carl Dining Farm, Clyde Russell Home uh, in Kensington, a UFO came in. This was a series of five lights. They were red lights. Initially he didn't see the craft behind those lights, but later he did. And they were blinking in sequential order. One, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, The craft came toward him and he dove behind a stone wall and hid. Then the craft receded and it stopped over the top of the Clyde Russell home that you see right up here. He was terrified. Uh, It then receded back into the background behind those trees again, and when it did, he ran up to the home, he knocked on the door. Uh, Nobody answered the door. Just about that time, a car was coming down the road and he flagged it down. He got a a ride into the Exeter police station. And just as he was there, white and shaking and uh, very frightened over what he saw, Officer Bertram came in. And he talked about how he had found a car stopped beside the road. And there was a woman who was traveling from Epping toward Exeter who had this same object with red lights on it. Uh, come down over her vehicle. It followed her all the way from uh, from Epping toward Exeter, scared the living daylights out of her. She was hysterical. She couldn't even drive the car. She was so frightened. And that's why Officer Bertrand stopped uh, to assist her. He heard Norman Muscarillo's report and he and Norman went back to Kensington. And they got out of the cruiser and they were looking, they didn't see the UFO at first, but then it came back toward them again. And it came so close that Officer Bertrand dropped to his knees and nearly pulled his gun. He estimated it was within 100 feet of them at that point. Just then, as it was beginning to recede into the background again, Officer Hunt came along in his cruiser and stopped and saw it as it was beginning to move away. He did not have that close encounter that Muscarello and Bertrand had. Very, very frightening for those involved. When the UFO receded, it headed out toward Hampton and then at 3 o'clock in the morning, There was a phone call from a person in Hampton, New Hampshire, who had also seen this and called to report it. Major David Griffin from Pease Air Force Base came out and interviewed the witnesses. He wrote a report. He visited the site in Kensington, and he stated, Quote, the three observers seem to be reliable, uh, stable, reliable persons, especially the two patrolmen. He continued, he found nothing in the area that could be the probable cause. And he said Pease Air Force Base had five B-47 aircraft flying in the area in Operation Big Blast that night, but he did not believe they had any connection to this sighting. Well, Operation Big Blast Coco terminated at 12.30 a.m. That was a little bit before Norman Muscarillo's sighting. And the last one arrived at Peace Air Force Base at 1.35 a.m. The thing is they were not hovering 100 feet above the witnesses silently, and there were not five red lights flashing in sequential order. The question was, could it have been a refueling operation? Uh, CSI, formerly SICOP, had uh, written quite a lengthy article. They'd done their investigation, but unfortunately they didn't do their homework. They speculated about what it might have been, and they said, it was probably a refueling operation. It was in the distance and it was just misperception by humans. They always push the idea that uh, humans are so faulty at perceiving information that a UFO that's hovering 100 feet above ground could be misperceived as a distant aircraft or distant star. It's a ridiculous explanation in my opinion. Well. There was an investigation done by the Air Force. You can see the document right here. And it reads, quote, there were no refueling operations in New England, in the New England area, during the time in question. So throw out the CSI explanation. The Air Force already investigated it. They said no, it wasn't that. Then the Pentagon issued a statement. This is the Pentagon's statement. They said, it was high-altitude aircraft, stars or planets that were magnified by a weather inversion. A weather inversion again, that was an explanation that was given to many, many sightings back then. The facts from Project Blue Book state, there was a five-degree inversion from the surface to 5,000 feet. But at closest approach, we know the UFO was within a hundred feet of the witnesses. It wasn't caused to look larger because of an inversion. After they issued this statement, officers Hunt and Bertrand took a lot of ribbon. They were quite upset and they wrote a letter to Hector Quintanilla at Project Blue Book. He was the director of Project Blue Book. And in part, I'm going to read this letter to you. They said, we are still upset about what happened after the Pentagon released its news, saying that we have just seen stars or planets or high altitude air exercises. This is actually a photocopy of part of the letter. They stated, in addition, As we mentioned, we are both familiar with all the B-47s and B-52s and helicopters and jet fighters which are going over this place all the time. On top of that, Patrolman Bertrand had four years of refueling experience in the Air Force and knows regular aircraft of all kinds. They didn't tell you that. It is important to remember that this craft Uh, we saw was not more than a hundred feet in the air and it was absolutely silent with no rush of air from jets or chopper blades whatsoever and it did not have any wings or tail it lit up the entire field and two nearby houses turned completely red it stopped hovered and turned on a dime these are the archival documents This is what really happened. They continued, what bothers us most is that many people are thinking that we are either lying or not intelligent enough to tell the difference between what we saw and something ordinary. Three other people saw this same thing on September 3, and two of them appeared to be in shock from it. It was absolutely not a case of mistaken identity. We both feel that it's very important for our jobs and our reputations to get some kind of letter from you to say that the story which the Pentagon put out was not true. It could not possibly be, because we were the people who saw this, not the Pentagon. Enter two prominent figures Dr. Donald Menzel, he was an astrophysicist, uh, director of the Harvard Observatory, had a a very prominent man, terrific reputation in his field.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Early on, uh, debunking UFOs, he was also listed as a member of MJ12. Stanton Friedman, my co-author, uh, went to Harvard. He had to get permission to talk to Donald Menzel's wife, and when and he did get permission. We went through his archival files and found out that Menzel worked for the NSA, the National Security Agency, had a very long record of working for the NSA. And then Philip Class, who was one of the editors, he was a senior editor for Avionics, uh, 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 Aviation Week, and Space Technology magazine out of Washington, D.C. He was one of the major debunkers and disinformants of UFOs during the 20th century. He had a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, worked in the field for 10 years, and then went on to write for this magazine. And then along the way, particularly after 1966, became a major debunker and I say disinformant, and I'm going to show it. This is what Lieutenant Colonel Hector Kingtonia, Project Blue Book director from 1963 to 1970, said about Donald Menzel and Philip Klass. Undercover, they were working for Project Blue Book as consultants. They weren't paid for their work. They were volunteer consultants. And Quintanilla, said of Donald Menzel. Let me advance this slide. He said, Donald Menzel has helped on some very ticklish cases. I consider Menzel to be a true scientist and not a publicity grabbing charlatan. Of Philip Class, he wrote in his biography, which you can find his autobiography online. Philip Class has offered a number of UFO cases that turned out to be beauties. I consider Class to be an excellent investigator. Well, actually, those beauties were passed on to Dr. Edward Condon, who headed the Condon Committee—the so-called scientific study of UFOs. In part, it was a scientific study, but Condon offered his personal opinion and not the scientific evidence, and Philip Class, through hectic Quintanilla, was sending the kookiest reports that he could find to Edward Condon, and Condon was speaking publicly and telling these kooky stories to uproarious laughter from the audience to show the audience that none of this business was real that it was all kooks and cranks. So who are the so-called money-grubbing charlatans? One of them was Dr. James E. McDonald, according to Hector Quintanilla and the others. He was at the top of his game as a meteorological physicist. He had been the chairman of the department at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Uh, he was probably the greatest scientist ever to have lived, to have studied the UFO phenomenon scientifically. And, of course, Dr. Alan Hynek. And Hynek was a consultant for Project Blue Book for many years. He was debunking UFOs, and then he changed his mind and he thought there really was something to this and that it did deserve scientific attention. And so he went on after the closure of Project Blue Book and formed uh, the Center for UFO Studies and studied this and advocated the scientific study of UFOs for many years. Hector Quintanilla did not like him at all. In fact, Quintanilla tendered his resignation because he didn't want to work with Heineck. And the Air Force would not accept it. They made him stay there and work in that position until Project Blue Book was closed. So let's take a a look at a historical perspective on all of this to see what the government's interest was in UFOs dating back to 1947. Dating back to 1946, the Army Air Corps was very interested uh, in UFO reports, flying, flying disc reports. They were being reported uh, around the world, particularly in Europe. And uh, so they decided they should take a look at these. Air Force pilots were seeing them. Scientists were seeing them. And so the Air Material Command Uh, offered an opinion concerning flying disks in 1947. You can see uh, Lieutenant General Nathan Twining, who wrote the report. And in part, this is what the report said. UFOs are real and not visionary or fictitious. He didn't use the term UFOs, it was flying disks. Approximating the size of man-made aircraft Extreme rates of climb and maneuverability, metallic or light reflecting, circular, flat on the bottom, domed on the top. They were very perplexed by this. Could this have been some secret project we were working on? Could it have come from the Soviet Union? They really needed to study this to determine what these actually were, and they did determine that they believe they did not come from this planet. This is not a hoax document. There are many hoax documents. This document uh, can be found in the Condon Report on page uh, 894. This brought about Project Sign, and I know that Ryan spoke a little bit about Project Sign and Grudge Uh, in his lecture. I'm not going to do a lot of talking about them. But starting in December 1947, Project Sign was formed, and they collected, collated, and evaluated all sightings that could affect national security. They analyzed in all 243 cases, and in the end, they favored an extraterrestrial hypothesis. That did not set well in Washington. So, it was reorganized as Project Grudge. Uh, The director of Project Sign was relieved of his duties, the rest of the staff, and only two lower ranking officers remained on the team for Project Grudge. And their job was to make up, invent explanations for the cases that Project Sign could not explain they used simple scientific explanations to do that. And on the quarter that defied explanation, they called in psychological consultants to think up explanations, such as faulty human perception. In 1951, Captain Edward Ruppelt was brought in to organize, reorganize Project Grudge into Project Blue Book. And again, it became an organized study for as long as he was there. By 1952, they had 4,400 UFO reports, and 1,593 of these had been investigated. In 1952 to early 1953, they turned 3,201 of their cases over to the Battelle Memorial Institute for further study and I'm going to get into this in a few minutes. What is significant about this is that Project Blue Book attempted to assign prosaic explanations to these reports, and in the end, 26.94 still remained unknown, meaning something that they could not find here on this earth. There was an interesting meeting at the Pentagon in May of 1952. I talked to you a little, couple of slides ago about Donald Menzel. He was at that meeting. He met with six Air Force officers, and he said to them that using a few elementary (laughs) experiments, using liquids of different densities, he could take the problem off their hands. He could explain away all UFO sightings. Well, Dr. Stefan Possumet, who was the chief of the Director of Intelligence Special Study Group under Major General John Alexander Samford, replied to him, why do you think a few elementary, simple experiments prove anything? Menzel changed the subject, and he said, well, you know, most of these reports are hoaxes anyway. And the Air Force men, said, only 2% of our cases are hoaxes. What are you talking about? And so he was getting a little hot under the collar at that. And he said, well, I've written two articles, for one for Time Magazine and one for Look, and I want your endorsement for these debunking articles I've written. And uh, Will, uh, General William Garland stood up, and he said, uh, we refuse to blindly endorse your few simple theories. Donald Menzel was furious. He stormed out of the room, but before he did, he said, well, I would like to volunteer to be a consultant on Project Global. He was turned down, but as you have seen later on, he was brought in as a consultant to debunk these cases by providing disinformation. Well, things were heating up in 1952. There were UFO reports up and down the East Coast, across the United States, on the West Coast, and as far away as Japan. Washington was very concerned at this point. There were solid targets, radar targets, uh, at National Air Force, Or airport and Andrews Air Force Base in July of 1952. F 94s were scrambled and made visual contact with these. The cover story was that they were just spurious targets on the radar screen. That is not consistent with the reports made by the Air Force officers and the radar tower controllers. You can see the newspaper article there. Well, General Stamford called a press conference at the Pentagon. It was the largest press conference in Washington since the end of World War II. (laughs) The press was very, very interested in all of this. And the interesting thing was some of those reporters we were really looking for a debunking explanation. It seemed that they wanted to reassure the public there was nothing to any of this. But General Sanford, in part, made this statement. He said, we're not trying to discredit the observers. That's the reason that I said we have many reports from credible observers of incredible things. There is nothing else in the work that can do these things except phenomena And I emphasize phenomena, because you see this over and over again. It's aerial phenomena. Phenomena is something that is observable, but really can't be studied scientifically. Moving on, the CIA developed an interest in all of this in 1951. And by 1952, things were heating up in the CIA. They were doing their own study. The Project Blue Book was cooperating with them, giving them files. And in January of 1953, uh, we had the Robertson panel uh, that met. It was headed by Dr. H.P. Robertson. And there were four very prominent scientists who served on the panel. They were all government-connected scientists. They had all worked under government contracts, they went into the room first. And the Air Force people who remained out in the hallway stated, and let me move ahead a little bit, just back up. So they're also present were other people from the CIA, from the Office of Scientific Intelligence. And here were the representatives from Project Blue Book. I introduced Edward Ruppelt. There was also Dewey Fournay, who was the Pentagon UFO chief, and and then Dr. Alan Hynek. They sat in the hallway and heard these scientists laughing and making disparaging remarks about the whole subject. And then H.P. Robertson said, well, we have to be serious about this but uh, we really don't want the public to uh, be worried about all of this. So it would be good if we could explain this. I'm just going to give you an overview of one of the 15 reports that were studied in detail. There were eight actually in detail, 15 in less detail. This took place in Tremington, Utah, on July 2nd, 1952, a Navy warrant officer, Dalbert Clement Newhouse, who was an aerial photographer with 2,000 hours flying time, his wife and two children were driving across With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: The United States. He was being stationed on the West Coast. They were about 10 miles north of Truman when his wife pointed out some shiny discs in the sky that were flying in an irregular pattern. He was so interested that he stopped the car and he got out and he looked at them. They started to move away and that's when he got the idea that he should video them. He did, he took out his equipment, they were in the distance by the time he took the video, but he turned it over to the Air Force and the Navy. And they, a frame, by frame analysis was done on this video. In all, the Air Force expended a 1,000 hours on this, 1,600 frames. Both the Air Force and the Navy could find no prosaic explanation for what occurred. The scientists were shown a video of birds in flight and the scientists said, Looks like birds in flight to us. Send the scientific reports back to the Air Force and Navy for re-evaluation. Of this, Dr. Hynek said this is akin to asking Madame Curie to examine a small fraction of pitch blend she distilled and still expecting her to come out with radium. This These are some of the recommendations in the final report from the panel. They said panel members stressed the opinion that UFOs should be viewed as phenomena, much as Foo Fighters during World War II. Don't worry the public. Recommend a debunking campaign that would reduce the public's interest in flying saucers through television, motion pictures, and popular articles. One of their ideas was to, take the most compelling reports they could find, present them on television, have a scientist come on and speculate, giving a prosaic explanation and making the witness appear to be silly and therefore it would reduce the public's interest and certainly no one would want to come forward. That plan didn't work. A lot of people continued to come forward thanks to NICAT. Scientists were encouraged to debunk UFO reports through deductive reasoning, not the evidence. And they recommended surveillance of civilian UFO groups and their leaders. And in my new book, you will see that evidence. Well, after that, there were two changes in Air Force policy. One took place in late 1953, the next in 1952, four. Uh, First was Air Force Regulation 200-2, stated Project Blue Book will inform the news media on UFOs only when they have been positively identified as familiar objects. The names of the principals, intercept and investigation procedures and classified radar data could not be revealed. All unsolved cases were classified. Also, JANAP 146, the joint Army-Navy Air Force regulation, stated that it is a crime for military personnel to discuss classified UFO reports with unauthorized persons, violators faced up to two years in prison, and a $10,000 fine. Major changes taking place. So I talked about um, Blue Book Special Report number 14, Unfortunately, it was not prepared in time for the Robertson panel to review. It was released in 1955. It was classified secret initially, and then it was made public. The 3,201 cases that were examined uh, were scientifically examined. Uh, Witnesses, some witnesses were interviewed. They filled out questionnaires. Uh, there, this was the largest study ever done by the Air Force. They attempted to categorize them again into prosaic cat- categories balloons, psychological, aircraft, etc. In the end, 21.5% still remained in the unknown category. And then in October of 1955, the Secretary of the Air Force, Donald Quarles, made the following statement. He said, I feel certain that even the unknown 3% could have been explained as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete informational data had been obtained. It was a lie. He substituted 21 and a half percent for 3% in order to disinform the American public. <clears throat> now let's take a look at some of the proponents of the scientific investigation of UFOs and those who campaigned against them. I've already introduced almost everyone. Uh, the. Second from the left on the bottom is Edward Condon, Dr. Edward Condon, a physicist, uh, highly esteemed, closely connected to the government, who headed up the Condon Committee in the scientific study of UFOs. This comes from the American Philosophical Society archival collection where I was examining Philip Classes. And this is something that Edward Condon wrote to thank Philip Class for his good work with the Condon Committee. He said to Class's boss at, um, at McGraw Hill: assuming you want to inform yourself about the UFO situation, you have an excellent resource in your own organization in Mr. Philip Class. He's very knowledgeable not only about flying saucers, but also about the foibles of flying saucer buffs, such as Professor James McDonald of the University of Arizona. The greatest scientist who ever lived, who studied UFOs scientifically, is called a UFO buff. And this, I believe, led to Philip Klass becoming the go-to guy for the mainstream media, who disinformed the mainstream media and the American public for as long as he lived. Philip Class not only disputed what James McDonald said, but he went after him personally. He tried to destroy him. He went to the Washington Post to Jack Anderson, who was a columnist there, and he said to Dr- Jack Anderson, I've been investigating James McDonald. Dr. James McDonald was over in Australia. He was doing cloud study research there with funds from the Office of Naval Research. And when he was there during his spare time, he interviewed UFO witnesses. Class didn't tell. Jack Anderson that, he told Jack Anderson that there was a misappropriation of funds. Jack Anderson published that information in the Washington Post. And then Class took that newspaper article and he wrote to the Office of Naval Research. And he said, this is the shocking misuse of naval research funds cited in the enclosed article is not only true, but was condoned, if not encouraged, by the Office of Naval Research Contract Monitor, who was responsible for protecting Navy taxpayer interests. Well, an investigation ensued, and Dr. McDonald was exonerated. He was not guilty as charged by Philip Class, But he did lose his funding, and that is what Class wanted all along. He was always opposed to the scientific study of UFOs. So was the director of the scientific study of UFOs. He wrote to Philip Class in 1969, if you hear of serious efforts to try to get additional federal money for UFO study, such as McDonald advocates, I would appreciate being tipped off so I can oppose them. Uh, there are far more details in my book based upon the archival record, many quotes from the archival record that pulls all of this together. The next person that class went after was Dr. Alan Hynek. Dr. Hynek had an article that was printed in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin in 1975. Class called the FBI. And he wrote a letter to the FBI. He was furious. This is what he said. In strong terms laced with sarcasm, the FBI wrote: Class said, Heineck is the spiritual leader of the vocal group of believers and kooks who believe that we're being visited by extraterrestrial spacecraft, spaceships. The FBI has given its endorsement to a hoax. That UFOs are extraterrestrial origin and to a fraud, Alan Hynek. The FBI responded. Class was informed that Hynek is a highly respected scientist, recognized by all credible professionals in his field of expertise, who is affiliated with a leading university. And class replied, "He won't be for long," and the reason for that was. That class had a little spy at Northwestern University who was an astronomy student who was reporting back to him on Heineck's activities. And class was using any information that he could get to attempt to destroy Heineck's reputation. But the FBI wasn't buying it. This is what they stated to class. Class's attempts to discredit Heineck are totally without foundation. Heinick could scarcely have any better scientific credentials. All his writings and public statements that were examined prior to his publication disclose a meticulously objective and scientific view of the UFO phenomenon. The next scientist the class went after was Stanton Friedman, my co-author, my colleague, my friend. And when Stanton and his wife were moving their family from California to New Brunswick, Canada, so that they could live closer to his wife's family, who all lived up in that area, because Stanton traveled a lot, Philip Class wrote a very official-looking letter to the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics at the National Research Council in Ottawa, Canada. Rich Dolan happened to find this letter. Stanton never even knew that it existed. But Class made disparaging remarks against Stanton. He warned them that Stanton was going to move to Canada and uh, say that a cosmic Watergate of great proportions existed in Canada. He called Stan a ufologist of the snake oil salesman variety. He said that he was like an octopus, with all of his tentacles thrashing about, and just when he the class was able to pin one down, the others were thrashing about. Those were just some of the comments in this letter. And he did all that he could to destroy Stanton Friedman's reputation. Stanton is a nuclear physicist. He has bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Chicago. He has spoken at over 500 universities and all over the world about his research. He's highly respected, but sometimes you'll read online that he's just a charlatan. That's misinformation. And I'm now going to show you a video. Uh, And will you please play that? This video took place in Canada it was on a television program that Stanton was on, and I want you just to see the way he was treated after he moved up there, I think is very telling.
4: Wait, wait a minute. there's one thing happening on this planet that's yeah. guaranteed to be of interest to anybody else in the local neighborhood. Within 50 light years, let's say. Tell me, why. and that is soon. We Earthlings will be going to the stars. Soon, meaning say less than 100 years, which is nothing on a cosmic timescale. I've worked on staged fission and fusion I'm propulsion systems. No, make one assumption about aliens: that they're concerned with their own survival and security. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Any advanced civilization would not want to be taken over by the Genghis Khans of the neighborhood. If you make that assumption, then you have to keep tabs on all the primitives in the neighborhood and especially close tabs on those primitives that are about to break the gravitational bonds that have kept them from making a mess elsewhere than on their own planet up to that point in time. How do you earn a living? Lecturing, writing, consulting You some make a pretty good work. living out of this. Not as good as when I was a physicist in industry. It doesn't it's certainly not as good as you do in what you do. Does you're it bother
3: that people think you're crazy?
4: They don't. You see, that's one of the many myths about ufology, if we can give it a fancy-sounding term. The majority of adult Americans and Canadians accept UFO reality, and the greater the education... You may have noticed the Gallup poll results in there. The greater the education, the more likely to accept UFO reality. Wait a minute. Are you crazy? Have
3: you ever been in a mental institution? No, I have never, never, been had care? Care? I've never had psychiatric care.
4: Never had psychiatric care.
3: You have uh, any scientific background?
4: I spent 14 years in industry as a nuclear physicist. I have bachelor's and master's degrees in physics from the University of Chicago. I work for little companies like General Electric, Westinghouse, General Motors, along the American Nuclear Society, American Physical Society, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, AAAS, American Association for Advancement of Science. We'll publish papers in scientific journals, etc. You're a crazy scientist. We'll be back in two minutes. Crazy for the truth.
2: under a Q clearance on nuclear rockets, and he's treated this way on television. Unbelievable. And by the way, Stanton gave me permission to play this. It's also, the text is in our new book. I'd like to present Friedman's Rules for Ufology. He couldn't be here today, he was invited, but he's 82 years old and He uh, did not feel comfortable driving the eight hours down from New Brunswick. So he's actually working this weekend, but he's out in Roswell for a mini conference. He was the original civilian Roswell investigator. So here they are. Have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. Visit archives to get first-hand documents and solid information. There's a lot of disinformation on the internet and on movies and on television shows, only believe half of what you hear. Learn about how security works. Please don't suggest that governments can't keep secrets when there is so much proof that they can. Don't suggest that professionals working under secrecy would tell their wives classified information or that classified work is published on the internet or on YouTube. It is not. You can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. Insist that debunkers provide evidence of their absurd claims. Sometimes scientists are wrong, especially when dealing outside their specialties. When the late Carl Sagan twice claimed that while uh, there are interesting UFO sightings, uh, They aren't reliable, and reliable sightings that aren't uh, interesting, but there are no sightings that are both reliable and interesting, according to Carl. Unfortunately, he provides no reference to any data supporting this totally false claim. Remember that the question is not, are all UFOs, alien spacecraft, but are any? Avoid crazy claims such as UFOs are never observed on radar, are never seen by astronomers, are only seen in the USA, and never land. One of the silliest claims is that governments can't keep secrets. See the 156 pages of top secret Umbra NSA UFO documents so heavily redacted that one can read only one sentence per page. CIA, TSU, UFO documents that were all blacked out. Here they are. (laughs) Freedom of Information Act requests submitted by Stan. Here are more. Deny in toto. And number eight, remember, we serious ufologists want research done by investigation, not by proclamation. The facts shout that some UFOs are of alien origin, that star travel is possible, and that there is a government cover-up. These are our books, three that I've co-authored with Stanton Friedman. My latest book, The Stand, Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers, will be released on September 19. But I have uh, copies hot off the press in the vendor room, $15. And also a book with Denise Stoner, who will be lecturing tomorrow and is in the vendor room with me today. And I want to thank you so much for attending my lecture.
1: Oh, yeah, so someone was asking me during our break what I thought about disclosure. Had I ever heard of disclosure, all right, they didn't say that. But they said, what do you think? Will there be uh, UFO disclosure, Richard? And I said, well, hold that thought, I'll talk about it before I introduce Kathleen. And um, of course, everyone who studies UFOs for more than like five minutes these days has heard, oh, gee, uh, will there be a disclosure? Uh, a re- revelation of the truth about UFOs by presumably the president or some other important personage. And um, I wrote a book uh, by that very title called After Disclosure, so I have given it a great deal of thought over the years. And, um, you know, the subject never just goes away. I personally believe that there will be a day when the truth is out and is uh, fully recognized just because I think it's impossible um, for the truth to be buried forever, and we are in a very, very uh, tumultuous, uh, even transformative era of human society and civilization, and I think that there's a greater and greater amount of communication on this subject uh, and information that is coming out. I'm not of the opinion, unlike some of my friends and colleagues, that there will be one this year. I don't believe that the current president will do it. As uh, some people do believe, they, they think it'll happen. I don't. Uh, nor do I think that either of the two pre- major presidential candidates are, or even for that matter, the other two presidential candidates um, are likely to do it. Uh, I still think that we're at a point where in the official power structure, the pressures are t- way too vast to allow for a voluntary disclosure. Um, I do think one day it could happen if the pressure is severe. I would say this, though, if there is some kind of announcement by a US president, I would uh, duck and run as far and fast as I could because I don't believe it would be a truthful one. And I do believe that um, uh, it's funny because I'm doing work right now on the history of false flag operations. I have nothing to do with UFOs. I think we live in an era of uh, of false flags and intrigue and lies. So I would think that. if there were a UFO disclosure, that it would be something like a false flag in the sense that, if you you know, imagine that gov- if there's a government agency that's got this mountain of uh, UFO data, which I, I believe they do, and if they were to disclose, they would probably be masters of spin and propaganda, and then would there ju- just disclose a select amount that they want to, it would be truthful, but it would also be like one-sided, and use that information then to run whatever agenda that they want to run. That's my current opinion on, on disclosure. We'll be